Well, I, I'll be quick to admit, I've come to the place in my life where I can say that I love a good love story. I think everybody loves a good love story if, if they're honest. Now, I must also admit that my wife and I have very different tastes in love stories. For me, a good love story is Braveheart. Uh, is that surprising? No, like really. And for her, she's more of like a notebook or the song or... I don't remember, I fell asleep. So, um, there's just something that's just so compelling about a good love story. And the Bible is full of love stories. Some romantic and dramatic, some are even provocative. I mean, you don't get two pages into the Bible before you come across naked people. You ever talked about, have you mentioned that to your teenagers, right? I mean, but seriously, think of Jacob and Rachel, Samson and Delilah, Ruth and Boaz, Solomon and the Shulamite maiden. But on a broader level, the story of the Bible is a story about the love of God. Love that is so central to his being that 1 John tells us that God is love. That God is love. It's a place like this where, that, where it's so important for us to keep all of the Bible in view. When we read a statement like, God is love, we need all of the Bible in, in view. You'll probably remember, if, you're, if you've been here for the last couple weeks, that we are in a series where we are exploring some of the big themes of the Bible. So rather than looking at just one passage, we are trying to look at the whole Bible at once. Right? We're trying to have the whole Bible in view, which is critically important. So take, for example, when you read a verse like, God is love. Or even a verse like John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. It's easy in verses like these to project our own notions of what love really is, our own expectations and our own ideas on what love is. But, but we can't do that, can we? Because God defines what love is, and if God is love, then he describes what it is like. I mean, we could ask, how do we know what love is? And how do we know what God's love is like? Well, to answer a question like that, we don't need just 1 Corinthians 13 or just uh, John 3.16. We need the whole Bible. Last week, I told you the story, the entire story of the Bible, through the lens of a God who creates. Tonight, I would like to tell you the story of the Bible through the lens of love. More specifically, through it's a story of a God who of God of love who chooses to love sinners. Listen to this key verse from Deuteronomy chapter 7 verse 9. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps his covenant and steadfast love with those who keep who love him and who keep his commandments to a thousand generations. As we move into this, would you join me in praying that the Lord would bless our time together. Father, we pray that tonight that you would warm our hearts, that you would move by your spirit to help us see and understand what you are like. Illuminate your word from this 
tall view, illuminate it to our hearts and excite our imaginations. And would you press upon each one of us that you love us more than we thought. Let that be true tonight, we pray. I ask this in your name. Amen. Well, the story of love does not begin with once upon a time. That's because love has existed before time has existed. In John chapter 17, verse 24, Jesus prays these words. Listen carefully. Father, I desire that they, the disciples, that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me. Listen carefully. Because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So there in John, Jesus is telling us that before the beginning, before once upon a time, before the world existed, the Father and the Son existed together in eternal, intra-Trinitarian love. The Father loved the Son, the Son loved the Father. There has never been a time where the Father and the Son have not shared perfect love for one another. The Bible tells us that the most foundational thing about God is that he is a father. God the father in in that one person. And you can't be a father if you don't have a son. And you can't be a father if you don't love. The Bible could not rightly say that God is love if there was no one to love. So God is loved from all eternity past. What a marvelous thing to consider. The most foundational thing the Bible says is not that God is almighty or that he's creator or that he's a God of wrath, but that he is love. So right from the beginning, we can recognize love has existed before humans existed. So we cannot claim to have invented the idea. Not even country music singers. Love is not a human invention or idea, and we certainly don't define it or redefine it, but it is found and established in the shared relationship of God himself existing in three persons. And this God of love is not merely a God of love, as we saw last week, but he is a creator. And out of the overflow of this abundant love, God has chosen to create. And so our story of love begins before creation, but it does move into creation. Love, I believe, is clearly displayed in the Bible's account of creation. For God did not just create the world in a, as, as a place where we could survive, right? He didn't leave it as chaos, but he created a good world. There's a rhythm and a beauty in Genesis 1 and 2 that that show that what God has made is delightful and exciting. It's a world of beauty and perfection. Just think of it. God has made a world with color, with cheesecake, with springtime, with baby giggles, with Mozart. And it's in love that God created us here and placed us in a beautiful world and gave us the capacity to enjoy it. He didn't have to do that. If you ask my wife, I say this all the time, I'll taste something good. I'm like, I can't believe God did this. Like, why did he do this? In fact, it's part of our design 
to be attracted to beauty. God made us as a people who can see and appreciate and respond to beauty. It's our capacity to worship. We were designed to be attracted to and to respond to the beauty of God himself. God also gave humans the capacity to know and to share love. And not only did Adam and Eve know and love God, but God created them to love each other. That this love that he shares with man, man can share with man. But sadly, as you probably know, even in paradise, when Adam and Eve had everything they could ever want, they rejected God's love. What a tragic thing. They rejected God's good word, and in doing so, they rejected God's love. They chose instead to love themselves, to turn that worship capacity in on themselves, rather than loving God. And so God expelled them. He separated them out of the garden. But astonishingly, now we take this for granted because we've read the Bible, but astonishingly, even in sin, even when man takes on the qualities of Satan himself, God's love did not cease. Have you ever stopped and thought about that? In love, God preserves Adam and Eve. He preserves their lives. He loves them by covering their nakedness. He loves them by providing a world outside of the garden for them to live. It's not the paradise of Eden, but it is still upheld by the hand of a loving God. And this loving provision for sinners in some ways, is most clearly seen after the flood, as we talked last week, where God provided food and he promised to continually provide sunlight and seasons. And he extends this worldwide stability to all sinners, to all the billions and billions and billions of people who would hate him. God continued to love Now sinners everywhere enjoy a measure of God's love and God's grace. And not only does God continue to love those who hate him, but he even reunites them in love to one another. He gives sinners who are perpetually inclined to love ourselves, he gives us the capacity to love others in marriage. We see this in Genesis 2 and 3. But that is certainly not to say that sin has not left its mark. From the very beginning, we see that God loves those who reject him, but he does reject. God does reject some. The very beginning, Cain was driven away by God. He was rejected by God, driven out of the presence of the Lord. And notice, God continued to love him. He continued to love him in that he gave him a mark of protection. Right? He, he, he gave him some grace to preserve his life. He gave him a mark, but God rejected him. In fact, God rejected Cain, and he rejected all of his descendants. Instead, God chose to bless Cain's younger brother, Seth. 
and all of Seth's children, the line of Seth. Many scholars have, I think, rightly recognized that from the beginning of the Bible, there are really two lines of humanity. There is a line in the seed, there's a, uh, a line from the seed of Cain, who is very much like the serpent, and then there's a line from the seed of Seth, child of God. And all throughout the Bible, we see this distinction between the seed of Cain and the seed of Seth. And so we need to stop and recognize that while God shows a measure of love, which is completely undeserved, a measure of love and grace to all, he shows special love and grace to some. God's love for those who have rejected him continues, even though man's hatred of God intensifies. That's what happens as we build up to the flood. It's so much so that God wipes the world clean. You would say he rejects the world and wipes the world clean with the flood, except for one family. God lovingly chose to save Noah. But even from Noah's family, God rejects some. God curses Noah's son Canaan. And instead blesses Shem and all of Shem's descendants. And you'll notice, friends, carefully that there is, there's a pattern that's already emerging. God loves all sinners by giving them life. I mean, just think of it. We sinners have forfeited their rights to life. For the wages of sin is death. But God loves sinners anyway. But the Bible shows that God loves some sinners in a special way. Seth, not Cain. Noah, not those destroyed in the flood. And it's a pattern that continues into the story of Abraham. Abraham, remember, did not know God. And he certainly did not love God. He certainly did not begin in faith. He wasn't righteous. He he didn't have any faith at all. In fact, until God, the God of creation, remember last week we saw how God created a new man? He spoke. That's how, when God wants to make something, that's what he does. He speaks. Isn't that awesome? So he needs, he wants Abraham to be a new man. Abram, he speaks. Abram becomes Abraham. He gives him faith. He called him. In Joshua chapter 24, it's an interesting passage. It says that God called to Abram out of the land beyond the Euphrates. And it says specifically that Abraham or Abram was an idolater. When God called Abram, Abram worshiped other gods. It's not because he was a good guy. It's not because he was swell or the most righteous guy around. God took him. He called him. He plucked him out and saved him. Why? Why? Why did God call him? Well, the Bible tells us that God called him because God wanted to. That's why God does stuff. He wanted to. God loved him because God chose to love him. And God invited him into a relationship of love, a covenant that was expressed and defined through the Abrahamic covenant. Part of that covenant, a big part of that covenant, is that God made a promise to Abraham that he was going to bless, right? That's love language. He was going to bless him and all of his children forever. And in fact, he was going to use him and all of his children to bless the whole world. To love the whole world. He makes this clear in Genesis 12. And so we see this pattern continue. 
that God sets his love on some and rescues them and sets them apart for his special purpose. The pattern continues in that God rescued Isaac in a special way, didn't he? And God rescued Jacob and Joseph and eventually he rescued Israel, the whole nation of Israel out of slavery and out of the idolatry. He called them out of the idolatry of Egypt and called them into the wilderness. But have you noticed in the story of Israel that we quickly realize that Israel was no better than the Egyptians? God judged the Egyptians for their idolatry. But what did Israel do first chance they got in the wilderness? How are they any different? Yet God placed his special love on them. In fact, at Sinai, right, the mountain where God came down and met his people, there's language that shows that God married them. He betrothed them. He takes them as his own people and he promises to love them in a special and unique way. I want you to see this yourself. So look, turn with me to Exodus 19. I'll be quoting lots of scripture tonight and I'll ask you to turn to a few key passages. Exodus 19, verse 4. And you can listen. This is what God says uh, to Israel through Moses at Sinai. This is a key passage. I think we read it last week. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. How I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. Listen. You'll be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. God selected them and loved them specially. But just like Adam and Eve, their parents, God's people Israel reject his love and turn to other lovers. They find more joy and more comfort and more safety and more pleasure in the idols that they can make with their hands than the God who bore them on eagles' wings. This is not a minor point of the Bible. The prophets go to extreme lengths to help you and me understand that this rejection of God is adultery. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 2 with me. It's hard to select one passage, but I chose this one because there's more bang for your buck. Two on one page. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 2. Listen, listen to what God says to the prophet Jeremiah. I remember the devotion of your youth. Your love as a what? As a bride, because God had married them. And how you followed me into the wilderness in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord. The first fruits of his harvest, all who ate of it incurred guilt and disaster came upon them. Jeremiah 2 verse 2 especially shows us that God rescued and led Israel into the wilderness where he loved her as a bride. But she turned away. The Bible says she played the whore, the harlot, turned away after other gods. Look over to verse 20. 
For long ago I broke your yoke and burst your bonds, and you said, I will not serve. Yes, on every high hill, under every green tree, you bowed down like a whore. You think God is overstating the point? Or is failing to worship God tantamount to spiritual adultery? So God judged Israel. Yet the pattern continued. People rejected and despised God, choosing to love other gods and loving themselves, and so he judged them. Yet he loved them still. The book of Hosea is one of the most graphic depictions of this spiritual adultery that will move you and shock you as you read it. God tells Hosea, a prophet, to go and marry a prostitute. To go and marry a prostitute named Gomer. And so he does. He marries her. And he thus rescues her out of her prostitution. But what does she do? She runs back. She runs back. And becomes a sex slave. So God tells Hosea, go get her again. Go rescue her again. And listen to Hosea verse, chapter 3, verse 1. And the Lord said to me, Go again. Love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins, which is an idolatrous symbol. Though the prophet Hosea, through the prophet Hosea, God dramatically tells Israel, This is what you've done to me. This is how I love you. I was your husband who rescued you and married you out of your slavery. And I've loved you faithfully, yet you've rejected me. And I went and got you again, and you rejected me again. Even after this, Israel rejected God again. Israel didn't get the message, and they would not forsake their spiritual adultery. They refused to stay faithful to God. And so, in shocking exasperation, God leaves. He leaves them. And just as we saw last week, as the Old Testament ends, the temple is empty. God is not there. The walls are there, but God is not there. The prophets, the mouthpiece of God, are silent. God is not speaking. All of the tokens of God's love have been removed. But not before a declaration of hope. In Jeremiah chapter 31, we see that God makes a staggering promise about a new marriage relationship. A new covenant. Listen to this familiar passage in Jeremiah 31, verse 31. The Lord says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. Right? So you know that's marriage language. A new covenant. It's new with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I'll put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. The first marriage covenant 
The covenant with God and Israel was two-sided. God would be faithful. God would keep his end of the deal, but Israel had to be faithful as well. And they couldn't do it. They couldn't do it. Man has never successfully kept covenant with God. So God promises a new arrangement. Not like the old one. In this one, God will make sure that his people remain faithful. How? If you read on, he's going to give us new hearts. Hearts that don't love idols, but love him. But for now, there's, there's silence. It seems like God's love for his people has finally found its limit. Maybe it's another flood situation. We've got to wipe everyone out and start over. Until, in the ultimate demonstration of love, the Father sends the Son Himself. The one He has loved from all eternity past to come to His rebellious people. And the New Testament Gospels emphasize that Jesus is a son. Remember, God called Israel a son. So Jesus is a son, a special son of Abraham. And just like the nation of Israel, Jesus is God's special son. And just like Israel, Jesus goes off into the wilderness to be tested. Israel didn't do well in the wilderness, did they? How'd Jesus do? And when he came back, he called 12 new men. Kind of like 12 new tribes to be his disciples. Jesus is creating a new Israel. Which he has to do because ethnic Israel still hates him. Don't they? Just as from the very beginning, the people that God made, the people that God created, hated him in return. That has been the pattern of mankind. Though he fed them, though Jesus healed them, though he raised them from the dead, though he spoke life to them, they killed him. John 1 says he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. And so on the cross, Jesus displayed the greatest expression of love the world has ever known. For greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. On the cross, Jesus took, Jesus willingly took all the wrath and the judgment and the punishment of God that you and I and Israel deserve. And he died to cleanse his bride from the stain of sin. And then, just like at the Passover meal, right before he died, Jesus instituted a new covenant. Luke's account says it like this. And Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given to you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup is poured out for you. And it's the new, new covenant of my blood. The new covenant of my blood. You see, now, in order to be a part of God's special people, in order to enjoy God's special love, you don't need to be born into a special nation. You need to be born again. That's how you're born 
into God's people. You need this new covenant heart. That's the only way to love God. And so when Jesus ascended into heaven, after he had risen from the dead, he promised, I'm coming back. And when I come back, there will be a wedding feast. Once again, Jesus will call his bride out of the wilderness of the world. And so the Bible begins with a wedding and then it ends with a wedding. Where God's people, the new Israel, the new Jews in the new Jerusalem, which comes down from heaven, how are they dressed? In a robe of white, of wedding white. The harlot dressed in white, prepared for her bride. And finally, once for all, God will be her God and they will be his people. And God's people will dwell with God in God's place forever. And in that place, there'll be no marriage. There'll be no point. Because it will have fulfilled its purpose to point to, to display in part the love that Christ has for the church. And in heaven, there are no shadows. There is only light. This is the story of God's love. Now, obviously, much more can be said. (laughs) But I want to pause here for a moment and ask, what can we learn from this? This is obviously a different way to tell the story. What can we learn from this? What can we learn and see from this telling of the story? What patterns emerge? What application do these provide? I've kept myself to two. I went from five to four. I was proud of myself. I only had four, and now I have two. But let's consider these two together. Two major takeaways. Church, love begins with God. By telling the whole story of the Bible through the lens of love, we are in a better position to understand where true love comes from. You don't conjure it up out of yourself, and you don't get it from other people primarily. It comes from God. True love is bound up within the very nature of the Trinity. Remember, God has loved Father to the Son, Son to the Father from eternity past. And so if you want to love, friend, if you want to be loved, if you want to be a good lover, a good father, a good husband, a good friend, you need to go to the source. Or if you need the resources to love other people, other difficult people, you need to go to the source, to God. The only way to experience and share real, true love is to get downstream from the love of God. All your relationship problems, all your happiness problems, I know you have happiness problems, all your self-esteem problems, They need to be submerged in the ocean of God's love. We all need to grasp God has made us. God made you. We we talked about this a lot last week. God has made you and only God can provide the love that you are longing for. Your husband can't do it. He could be great. He can't do it. You will only be happy when you are fully loved by God. You will never know a more satisfying love than his. 
And you will never know, you will never be able to truly love others unless you tap into his streams of love. The essence of idolatry, the essence of worshiping other gods is that we want happiness elsewhere. We buy into the lie that there is a version of happiness that is not as constrained as God's. That doesn't have as many rules or laws. God has all these fences, it seems. And so we seek satisfaction elsewhere, forgetting that God made us and he made us for himself. You can't be happy unless you're happy in the love of God. But hopefully you notice the pattern. God loves and man hates. This pattern flows all throughout the Bible. If God doesn't intervene, that's the only pattern. God loves while man hates, and God loves man while he hates. This tells us something about the nature of love. True love is never earned. True love is never kept by performance. It's never deserved. Think about that in those whom God has called you to love. Love is easy for us when they're giving us what we want, when we're getting something out of it. What has God gotten out of your love? It's just flowing back to him. We don't only love lovely people because God loved us when? While we were still sinners. It is in Christ and in Christ alone, friend, that you can find the resources not only to love those who aren't lovely. We're all not so lovely sometimes. You know that, right? Yeah? But to love those who hurt us. To love those who betray us. To love those who criticize us. It's in Christ that you can find the resources to love a spouse with dementia. It's in Christ that you can find resources to love a spouse who is critical of you. It's in Christ you can find resources to love a rebellious teenager. It's in Christ that you can find love to love the lost by speaking God's truth to them. Getting nothing in return, maybe just rejection. Speaking of marriage, we should be careful to note how central the role of marriage plays in the story. We almost did a whole sermon on that, but tried not to. It's central to the story, especially when you understand that marriage and covenant go hand in hand. When we understand that marriage, which was established before the fall, the very beginning, like the Bible begins with creating a marriage, when we understand that marriage was designed to display, to put on a showcase of God's love for the world, oh, there are so many implications. You can love when there is no love coming back. So not only does this give us resources that sustain us in difficult seasons of marriage, but it shows us how much marriage matters. Encourages us to fight for our marriages. To stay in our marriages. To pray for our marriages. If nothing else, the story shows us that marriage is about so much more than our perception of happiness or our personal happiness. 
God's design is much, much bigger than that. All love originates and is found in God. A second point I would like for you to notice and think about how to apply is this. God loves the whole world, but he loves his people distinctively. We saw this pattern emerge fairly quickly, and we could develop it much, much, much more. But we see that God proves that he loves the whole world because he made the whole world. He delights in it because it's his creation. It's God's world. That's why why he says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why would you die, O house of Israel? God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But though God loves the whole world, he loves his people in a special and distinctive way. And the Bible calls this kind of love election. Tragically, some recoil from this word because they think that it means that God is not loving but actually mean and unloving, which is a tragic misunderstanding because the Bible's whole point is that electing love is what makes love so stunning. If you are in Christ, then listen and consider this. You are not loved because you are lovely. And you are not loved because you've made good decisions. You are loved, why? Because God decided to love you. I had the chance to do premarital counseling from time to time. And in a premarital counseling room, you'll occasionally hear this question. uh, Groom, why do you love your spouse or uh, fiance, bride? And I love watching them squirm, right? Because they're like, oh, I better get this. I better get this one right, right? And they usually can, right? They've been, they've been together for like two seconds. So they, they can get it right. They can spit it out. Occasionally, a wife will ask a husband this. My wife has asked me this before. Why do you love me? And when I was newly married, I used to like, I'd have the list ready. You know, I don't, I don't get that wrong. I don't want to freeze. Oh, you're beautiful. And, and I love how you love the Lord and on and on. And then one night I told her, I said, I love you because I love you. I've chosen to love you, and I'm not going to stop. God has chosen to love his people. That's why. One of the clearest places to see this, flip over to Deuteronomy chapter 7. It's a beautiful place. I've already read part of this. Did I read the whole thing already? I don't remember. (laughs) Let's, Let's look at it again. Deuteronomy 7. Deuteronomy 7, verse 6, God is reasoning with his people, and this is what he says. Imagine this for a self-esteem book. For you are a holy, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. In fact, you were the fewest of all the peoples. Why does God love? Look, but it is because the Lord loves you. Do you follow that logic? Why does God love you? Why did God choose you? Because God loves you. 
It's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery and from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Notice the logic here, friends. God didn't choose to set his special love on Israel for any reason in them. Verse 8 says that he chose to love them because he wanted to. It sounds a whole lot like Paul's argument in Ephesians chapter 1, where he says that he predestined, why? According to the pleasure of his will. In other words, why does God love you? God chose to. Why did he choose you and not someone else? Because God wanted to. And once we stop trying to sort out all the implications of that and just pause, will we not marvel? I'm convinced that part of the work of the enemy is to blind us to this beauty. Don't you see how freeing this is? God's love for you is completely bound up in him. It's outside of you. It's not because you somehow made some good decision or somehow keep the rules. God loves you and will keep on loving you because he wanted to and that love flows out of his very nature and his very character and that love will never fail. This is why Paul can say, neither height nor depth nor anything in all creation can separate me from the love of God. A child of God, don't you see and don't you rejoice that you have contributed nothing to your salvation? Do you see, oh fellow sinners, how secure we are? Do you see how stunning God's grace is? God's love for you had everything to do with God and nothing to do with you. Which means that we are safe. And it means that we have a song to sing forever. Let me close just by reading briefly from Ephesians chapter 1 and then I'll close us in prayer. Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him when, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. Go praising that glorious grace. Father, expand our hearts to understand how deep and how wide and how marvelous your love is for us. And let us respond to you in worship. We ask this in your name. Amen. You're dismissed, church. Go in peace.